As a reminder, this podcast is made by cardiology fellows to enhance the educational experience in the CDICU. The content is not verified by hosts or speakers, and the content provided by this podcast is not intended as medical advice. All opinions represented are our own and do not represent the opinions of our employer. CDICU On The Go, an educational podcast focused on key topics relevant to the management of patients in the cardiac ICU. Hi, everybody. This is Kaushik Amanchurla. I'm here with Dr. Andrew D. Philippus. He's our new medical director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit, and we're here to talk to you about mechanical circulatory support devices. Dr. D. Philippus, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. All right, so without any further ado, let's start off with a clinical case scenario. So we have Mr. X, who's a 65-year-old gentleman with a history of hypertension, sleep apnea on CPAP, and type 2 diabetes, who presents to the ED with crushing chest pressure that started approximately one hour prior to arrival. His initial vitals show temperature of 37.1, heart rate of 109, a blood pressure of 93 over 68, and he's setting 98% on four liters nasal cannula. A quick bedside 12-lead EKG shows ST elevations in leads V1 through V4 and reciprocal changes in the inferior leads. Now, I know that was a lot of information there, uh, Dr. D. Philippus, but what is it about the story or the vital signs that makes you worried that this patient may be trending into cardiogenic shock? Yes, that's a great question. This seems like a classic ST elevation myocardial infarction presentation, which is a, a leading cause of cardiogenic shock. Um, Cardiogenic shock is when you know, the, you're in shock because the cardiac output is insufficient to um, provide adequate oxygenation to the body. The things that make me uh, suspicious or concerned for cardiogenic shock in this patient, uh, first and foremost, is the low blood pressure. Uh, the blood pressure is 93 over 68. In addition, that is a very narrow pulse pressure. The pulse pressure is a crude measurement of stroke volume. Um, it's not perfect and is dependent on really the compliance of the vasculature, which uh, makes it a not perfect measure, but it certainly uh, tips us off. And this, at this extreme of uh, being so low is, is concerning. The other uh, vital sign that is of concern is the heart rate of 109. Uh, when your stroke volume goes down in order to try to maintain uh, a cardiac output, uh, the body increases the cardiac rate, and, and that uh, is an early uh, compensation or attempted compensation method, of, method uh, that the heart tries to employ. Elevated heart rate in cardiogenic shock and in acute MI is associated with bad outcomes, uh, likely because it's an indicator of a lower stroke volume. So those two things would, would certainly make me uh, concerned, uh, along with the uh, clear precipitant uh, or a etiology that, that is known to lead to cardiogenic shock. Great. Uh, so on exam, he's in moderate distress, and he's pretty quickly rushed over to the cath lab. Uh, all we have time for is some point-of-care tests. So his creatinine was 0.9, and his first point-of-care troponin was negative. But in the cath lab, he was noted to have a 100% thrombotic occlusion of his proximal LAD, which is aspirated, and then he undergoes placement of a drug-eluting stent. At the end of the case, reassuringly, he's chest pain-free. But his new set of vitals show a temper of 38, a heart rate of 110, 
a blood pressure of 89 over 71, and he continues to stay in the mid-90s on four liters nasal cannula. Dr. D. Philippus, at this time, is there any other information that you think is important before the patient leaves the cath lab? Well, now it really does appear that this patient is in cardiogenic shock, meeting several criteria. Certainly getting the patient to the cath lab for reperfusion therapy is the most important therapeutic intervention that can be made uh, for his cardiogenic shock. And it, it looks like in this case, that went very well. Uh, the next piece of information uh, I would want to know is his hemodynamics by Swan Dance catheter. A pulmonary artery catheter could be extremely helpful in uh, uh, further delineating uh, uh, the cardiac output, the cardiac index, the SVR, and the pressures uh, for us to really learn more about uh, both the right and left ventricular performance. That's a great point, Dr. DeFilippis. Uh, one thing I'm curious about, what are your thoughts on whether you think patients with cardiogenic shock ought to have a swan in place to be managed, or do you think they can be managed without invasive hemodynamics? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, the, the swan-gan catheter has some, you know, relevant uh, history to it that's pertinent to that question. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, uh, swan-gan's catheters were used very frequently in uh, both patients having myocardial infarction and in really almost all patients with acute decompensated heart failure. And in that kind of indiscretionate use of Swan-Gans catheter, there was uh, research done and studies shown that it didn't really uh, lead to improved outcomes. However, I think it's very important to note um, that those uh, studies did not include patients who were suspected of cardiogenic shock like this patient. I think the ESCAPE trial that comes to mind for a lot of people you know, these were exclusion criteria. So we're really talking about a different patient population. Um, I, I think it, it is important to, to note that there is not clear uh, randomized controlled trial data showing the benefit of a Swan-Zans catheter. And of course, the catheter is only giving information. It's not therapeutic in its own right, but can help with therapeutic decision-making. There is, uh, I, I would say, consensus uh, or close to consensus among experts in the field taking care of patients with cardiogenic shock, that the Swan-Gans catheter can be very helpful. In addition, there's multiple and, and recently uh, 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 more studies, observational and registry in nature, that show a benefit to the outcome of patients in cardiogenic shock when their care was guided by a Swan-Gans catheter. So for me, it, it, I feel that it's essential for managing these patients. And, uh, and the earlier, and in, in fact, there is data, again, observational data showing that the earlier the Swan-Gans catheter is employed uh, is associated with better patient outcomes. So I think before leaving the cath lab, uh, this patient should get a Swan-Gans catheter. Great. Thank you so much for that detailed answer. And to our listeners, uh, some of the studies that Dr. D. Philippus mentions, I'll make sure to link in our podcast so that you're able to access it and read it for yourself as well. So this patient did end up having a right heart catheterization and a leave-in swan placed. His initial set of numbers showed a right atrial pressure of 20, a PA pressure of 63 over 35, a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 32, a mixed venous O2 sat of 48%, and a fit cardiac index of 1.5. Along with our suspicions thus far, we have objective evidence now telling us that this patient is in cardiogenic shock. 
Now, Dr. DeFilip, there's an important question here is, what do we do with this data that we have? What are our next treatment steps? Do we reach towards medical management with inotropes? Do we consider mechanical circulatory support? And if so, at what point do we say, yes, we need to pull the trigger on mechanical support? Yes, yeah, so I think these small numbers are very helpful showing you that uh, the patient is clearly pressure overloaded. Both chambers, pressure overloaded. Um, cardiac index is very low. SVR is very high, all consistent with cardiogenic shock. I find the mixed venous saturation to be very helpful. Um, just to be clear about what this is, this is a sample of blood um, right before going to the lungs for oxygenation. And so this is the percent of oxygen saturation. And what it tells us is that the blood, after it's gone through the body and is coming back and now going to get reoxygenated, 48% of the oxygen that was uh, carrying capacity is left over still in the blood. And this is actually abnormally low. It should be 65 or more. And we say under 50 is really critical. And so that means that um, the body is not receiving adequate oxygenation, which is uh, something that requires immediate correction. So in this patient, um, I think you, you know, your decisions of how you're gonna restore uh, perfusion and cardiac output to a level that is consistent with sustaining life. Given that this patient is coming in with cardiogenic shock secondary to ischemic heart disease, uh, this is a patient who I would favor mechanical circulatory support. Furthermore, the patient being in the cath lab would avail us to, to being able to implement mechanical circulatory support immediately. Uh, you're, you mentioned um, medical therapy, and this would be inotropes. Um, norepinephrine is a first-line therapy for cardiogenic shock, and I think certainly in the short term and immediate, it could help restore perfusion to the whole body as well as re trying to restore perfusion to the heart itself. However, this is a actively ischemic heart and we'd be asking it to work harder in order to support the rest of the body as opposed to using a mechanical circulatory support device that may be able to restore flow and actually unload the heart to limit that ischemic infarct zone and to allow recovery. So in this patient in particular, in the cath lab, clear ischemic cause of his cardiogenic shock, I would, I would favor mechanical circulatory support being first line over the inotropes. Got it. That's incredibly helpful to know. I think this always also kind of leads us to the question, especially nowadays when we have so many different options to choose from in terms of potential devices. There's things like the intra-aortic balloon pump, there are these whole host of impella devices, and also we tend to see ECMO. Is there any way you'd be able to talk us through what your thoughts on each of those three devices are, where you see their use, and what disadvantages they may have? Sure. So the intraoral balloon pump is the uh, first of real mechanical circulatory support device, been around for decades. Uh, it goes in uh, typically the uh, femoral artery and uh, up the aorta and lands sitting right below the aortic arch, and just like the name would imply, is a balloon. This balloon inflates during diastole, uh, which would prevent blood from coming down the aorta, but then would also augment blood everywhere above the aorta. So perfusion 
back down the coronaries for the heart, up to the brain, etc. And then <clears throat> when systole triggers, the balloon would deflate. And when that would, would uh, produce is a space in the aorta, uh, and that space would be a void that it would essentially could be thought about as a reduction in the afterload, almost like a vacuum. And so it would help the propel the blood forward. It would relieve the amount of pressure that the heart is pushing against. So I like to think of the balloon pump as something that can provide immediate afterload reduction and something that may help augment coronary blood flow. But it's not directly producing cardiac output itself. So in someone whose heart is truly failing, um, it, it, it may be able to provide or relieve uh, some afterload and maybe augment a little coronary flow, but it's not in its own right providing flow to the body. And for a patient in cardiogenic shock, they need flow. And so I often find that the, an intraoperative balloon pump for a patient like this would be inadequate. <clears throat> also, in this setting, being um, cardiogenic shock secondary to acute myocardial infarction, there is some randomized control trial data with the use of, of the intraoperative balloon pump. And those trials have failed to show a clinical benefit of using the intraoperative balloon pump. So I, I would uh, tend not to uh, use the balloon pump as my first choice in the situation. The next would be um, percutaneous um, left ventricular assist devices. You mentioned one by name, Impella, and there's a, a host of Impellas. But I would think that that is, is certainly something that would come to mind here for me. The patient's already in the cath lab. These are devices that can put it, be put in percutaneously very quickly by interventional cardiologists and they can provide a range of flow. Uh, the workhorse of Impella is the Impella CP, and you can get uh, about three to four liters of flow. Uh, this device sits in the left ventricle and is directly and continuously pulling blood out of the left ventricle and injecting it into the aorta. And so it has the, the additional benefit of not only providing flow, but while it's providing flow, it's unloading the left ventricle, taking pressure out of that left ventricle, and you, you remind it, the listeners from this case, this is someone who had a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 32. That's indicative of the left ventricular and diastolic pressure. That is a very high pressure. The left ventricle very overloaded, uh, impedes uh, perfusion of the left ventricle, etc. The use of mechanical circulatory support here to both provide blood flow to the whole body and to unload that left ventricle makes Impella a good choice. You mentioned ECMO. ECMO is really, you know, full cardiopulmonary bypass. So in a patient who has a biventricular failure or has needs for oxygenating the blood, a potentially a patient who's in severe cardiogenic shock with uh, tremendous pulmonary edema, unable to oxygenate, um, ECMO has the advantage of not only providing support blood flow, uh, but also oxygenating that blood. So uh, it is a full support mechanism. We are lucky here to have an outstanding ECMO team uh, that could be deployed uh, to the bedside, uh, and they'll make the judgment of even needing to put ECMO in at the bedside versus going to the operating room or the cath lab suite. 
The one uh, or one potential disadvantage of, of ECMO, uh, percutaneously put, is that the blood is taking out from the venous side, usually from the right atrium or the inferior vena cava, but the blood is put back in when you have a percutaneous configuration by pushing blood up the aorta. And so that sometimes can cause some issues with pushing blood back towards the left ventricle um, when it's already overloaded and kind of put this left ventricle that's trying to recover from a heart attack in the pumping that it is doing is pushing against the ECMO machine that's pushing blood to it. There's ways to deal with that, um, but in, in situations where I don't need uh, full ECMO support um, in a, in, when we're trying to rest the left ventricle, uh, that may make it a second choice to something like Impella if the Impella can provide support. The other issue with, with ECMO that's an advantage is um, it could provide uh, higher flows, five, six, seven liters of flow if needed. Thank you so much for that detailed answer. Uh, when I think about the differences between ECMO and using an Impella, would it be reasonable to conceptualize it as if I'm mainly looking for univentricular, so just left ventricular support, think about reaching for the Impella, whereas if both the ventricles are failing, then think about reaching quickly for ECMO. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I use the example of, of when needing oxygenation but you're you're right. The you know, the ECMO is biventricular support, uh, and so if you have biventricular failure and you need support for both, uh, ECMO is able to do that. VA ECMO is able to do that immediately. The one caveat I'll say there is it it's often very difficult to judge, um, especially in an acute situation like this patient, uh, acute myocardial infarction. So presumably no heart failure prior to this. Uh, acute event, it's often hard to judge the performance of the right ventricle until you fully unload the left ventricle. So sometimes you'll unload the left ventricle and then wind up having to upgrade to right ventricular support. Got it. Thank you so much for all that. Um, we really appreciate the insight you're providing us. I think the one last thing um, I'm hoping to get some insight from you before we leave this podcast is, especially with things like ECMO, or more commonly with the Impella devices, which are residents we're more likely seeing the medical side of the cardiac intensive care unit. Do you have any clinical pearls on things we have to keep an eye out for and keep a track of? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so the Impella device, as I uh, alluded to before, uh, is put in a cath lab in, a, in an artery, typically the femoral artery, although it can go in the axillary artery, and then crosses over the aorta so that it's able to pull blood out of the left ventricle and inject it into the aorta. The position is, uh, is critical for this device to be positioned just right in the left ventricle to be able to effectively pull the blood out of the left ventricle and, and put it into the aorta. You can imagine if you put it too far in, you'll just be circulating blood in the ventricle. You pull it too far out, you won't be unloading the left ventricle. And so the positioning is critical. Uh, uh, my pearl is to use both echosonography and the chest x-ray. And whenever the patient is significantly moved, uh, uh, that should be done. Um, the, the console that controls the device uh, is also very helpful with positioning, uh, showing how the motor current is changing as well as what the pressures are 
um, being read from on the device itself. And that positioning is critical for maximal performance. It is also critical for hemolysis and bleeding. And this is a device that's sucking blood out of the ventricle and is being propelled. And with that comes the um, possibility of hemolyzing red blood cells and it can become a tremendous uh, problem and issue. You could see the hemolysis and the change in the urine color. You could also see it by changes in lab parameters Usually the LDH is the easiest to follow. Uh, so I think that uh, you should be frequently looking at the urine, frequently checking the LDH. And your solution to this uh, problem almost always is one of two reasons. One is the position. Uh, you should, if you're having issues with hemolysis, you should be checking the position to make sure the device is not sucked up against the wall, caught in a papillary muscle, too high up, too low down. The positioning is absolutely critical and a major driver of hemolysis. And the second is volume. Um, you know, the, the device is adjustable, but it's preload dependent. If the left ventricle is completely unloaded and collapses down, you don't have enough volume going into the device. Um, this this turbulent will result in turbulent flow and hemolysis. So there is, you know, sometimes the case after the patient's been situated, they really don't need massive amounts of diuresis once that pressure is, is, is relieved by the device unloading the left ventricle and uh, having adequate volume. Uh, and that's where your Swan-Gans catheter, again, could be uh, extremely helpful in, in following. Obviously, um, keeping an eye on your vasculature and your vascular access for bleeding is, uh, is critical. Thank you so much, Dr. DeFilippis. Thank you again for your time to be able to chat with us today and give us a, this fantastic overview on mechanical circulatory support devices and how to approach them in cardiogenic shock. Hopefully for our listeners, this is enough of an overview to build upon during your CCU rotations and learn more at the bedside itself. And as I had mentioned earlier, I'll make sure to put some links in so that you're able to direct yourself to some of the studies that were discussed, as well as a review article for managing patients in cardiogenic shock with mechanical circulatory support devices to this podcast itself. Thank you all again for listening. We appreciate it.